Welcome to Autism in the Adult podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Teresa Regan, an adult neuropsychologist. I specialize in brain behavior relationships for those 14 and older. I'm the parent of an amazing teen on the autism spectrum and a certified autism specialist. I am deeply grateful to bring validation, hope, and purpose to individuals and their families living on the autism spectrum. With this mission at its core, I founded and currently direct the OSF Healthcare Adult Diagnostic Autism Center in Central Illinois. My books include Understanding Autism in Adults and Aging Adults and Understanding Autistic Behaviors. For more information and to join my online community for free, visit www.adultandgeriatricautism.com. Please join me in helping individuals, couples, and families thrive while living life on the autism spectrum. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Teresa Regan, and today the topic has to do with experiences of abuse, trauma, and relational pain for those who are on the autism spectrum. Now, one thing that we have noticed is that individuals on the spectrum seem to be at significant risk for having had abusive or traumatic experiences or even for having had some experiences of relational pain that have really stuck with them that that seems to resurface in their mind and and impact how they feel and remember certain interactions from the past. We're going to talk today about what kinds of contributions there may be that place individuals at risk for these types of trauma or these lingering feelings of pain. And we're going to talk about why it is important to diagnose autism spectrum disorder uh, as well as uh, trauma issues. So that could be a PTSD or that could be a child who's diagnosed with attachment difficulty. It's really important to recognize both elements and not just to diagnose one piece because we really would provide different types of interventions and support for the neurologic piece, which is the autism spectrum disorder, and also for the experiential trauma. This is the mental health piece where someone has experienced something that has really impacted their emotions and experiences. I also want to start off at the beginning just setting the stage that we all understand that the victim of abuse is not responsible. It's the person who has produced the trauma, who has produced this abusive um, impact. And so when we talk about the complexities of what might set the stage for this abuse or trauma, we certainly realize that it is not the receiver who is responsible. I think it'll become more clear what we're talking about as we review some of the things that may set the stage for difficult interpersonal relationships and experiences, including the extreme of abuse or trauma. So let's talk first about the youngest ages. Let's talk about childhood abuse, neglect, and trauma. 
So one thing that we do know, and this has not always been understood, is that genetics plays a really important role in how the nervous system develops. And the most recent and largest genomic study last year is that at least 80% of this development of the ASD neurology is related to genetics. So when we do have an infant or a child with the neurology that would fall within the autism spectrum, you know, they may be struggling in areas where a neurotypical child would not. So for example, this may be a child that really struggles to self-soothe, to find that calm state or that sleep state. And so the parents who are involved with this infant and caring for the infant may be particularly overwhelmed with a child who is upset, crying, difficult to soothe, and not sleeping. In addition, there are also things like uh, food preferences. So this may be a child who's very uh, picky about what they will eat, clothing preferences, maybe that throws uh, meltdowns and has difficulty regulating when they're wearing certain clothing. This is often a child who has difficulty with the changes to their environment, unexpected events. And so the parents or the caregivers, the guardians, you know, may be really putting forth a lot of effort to get through very common elements of day-to-day life. Transitions, unexpected things, feeding and clothing your child, getting them to sleep, soothing them. I think one of the things that we can really focus on as a community is that for parents caring for children who have difficulty hitting that sweet spot of just sleeping and calming and uh, dealing with the day-to-day challenges of life, that we really as a community should come and support them. You know, these are times and seasons in their life where they're struggling to attend to the needs of their child. And sometimes the best that we do is tell them they should be parenting differently when really they're uh, at their wits end, just exhausted, trying to help uh, their infant or young child feel better just on a day-to-day basis. How do I help this child feel better in their own skin, get through the day, get some sleep, Um, And so supporting parents as a community may really help that challenging time where the parental needs are very high based not only on their nervous system, perhaps, but also on the needs of their child. So we see that the parent and the child can be a vulnerable individual during that season of life. So now let's talk about the possibility of the stage being set for some relational pain, uh, perhaps in the context of bullying. So this may be something that we're talking about during school-aged years. Of course, bullying can occur across any age. But for individuals on the spectrum, there are some things that may make them vulnerable to pain related to teasing, abuse, bullying. So let's talk about some of these. 
one of the things that leaves someone vulnerable to bullying is being on their own. This is someone that perhaps isn't part of a tribe or a crowd, and they don't have other people in their group of friends that have their back. You know, they're not part of a crowd where they have identity and protection and kind of fit in there. And so sometimes people who do have ill will uh, will pick off those vulnerable individuals who are not part of a crowd, who are kind of on their own and separate from the crowd of people, the team of people, the tribe of people. And so for the ASD individual who has trouble connecting with the crowd or who really doesn't feel that social drive to connect, they're perfectly content and interested in what they're doing in their alone time and in their individual mind. Their interests are so compelling. Uh, But still, this lack of connection with a crowd can make the person vulnerable for peers that harbor ill will and have destructive intentions. Another interesting thing about the spectrum is that, you know, people can misinterpret the social intentions of others. And what can happen in some instances is that the stage is set for this deep interpersonal pain because the individual on the spectrum has misinterpreted um, the intentions of other people. So there seem to be uh, certain uh, subsets within the spectrum where one person might have difficulty interpreting social situations in a way that leaves them vulnerable. For example, I never suspect anyone. As long as they're smiling, I know they have good intentions to me. Now, there is another set of someone on the spectrum where they might really struggle to understand the intentions of others, but in the opposite way. And they might think that everyone is kind of looking down on them, teasing them, wanting to hurt them, thinking badly about them. And in reality, it doesn't reflect what's really happening, that the person actually didn't intend anything hurtful, but there's this misinterpretation. So that also can be part of relational pain for someone who has had interactions with people they just can't let go of and can't forget that it was not intentional. Um, It was not meant to be ill will toward this person, but it was misunderstood. Some teams of researchers have actually found that when they look at people who are on the spectrum and those who are more neurotypical, that the individuals on the spectrum, or at least a subgroup, sometimes respond with much more relational pain to similar situations. So let's say that a peer did tease you or did say something that was you know, not the most sensitive. Uh, They were kind of joking at your expense or that type of thing. And another person on the spectrum may really feel that pain deeply and be affected by that for a long period of time. And in fact, some people that have been studied and they've been asked to explain what does that feel like when you have that deep pain, they'll they'll say that it feels existentially threatening. So they'll say, 
that teasing encounter or that joke at my expense, it felt threatening to the very core of who I am, to my existence, um, just deeply threatening to who I am. Whereas for someone else with a different neurology, they may walk away and say, well, that guy's really a jerk or that that girl was really uh, mean-spirited. I wonder what's going on with her. You know, someone on the spectrum may end up feeling that they carry that pain very deeply uh, for a very long time. So that may be at the root of some instances of relational pain and trauma. So, so far we've talked about some things that may set the stage for abuse and trauma in infancy. We've talked about some things that may make the ASD individual vulnerable. We've reviewed that there may be instances where something is misunderstood and also instances where that level of sensitivity for the person with the ASD neurology may may lead them toward carrying a burden of pain for a long period of time. Let's move now to talk about dating relationships and why there may be trauma and abuse within relationships of dating and sexuality. Many studies have found that women on the spectrum in particular, although certainly men can fall in this category too, but that women on the spectrum often report a history of trauma and abuse, and often this occurs within romantic relationships, dating relationships, sexual relationships. And they also may describe, if not instances of abuse, they may talk about feeling uh, high levels of discomfort um, during those uh, dating experiences or during sexual encounters because they may feel like they're not quite sure how to navigate that, how to do things they feel comfortable with, how to set boundaries. So in particular, some women say that what seems to happen to them is that they unconsciously start mimicking the other person's nonverbal behaviors. And that this mimicking can look like flirting. And because of that, the partner that they're with may feel that this person has consented to take their relationship to a further level. That this is flirting, this is acceptance, this is joining in. And the person who is doing the mimicking will not really realize that this is happening. So that's nothing intentional. But many will say it seems to be just the result of many years of masking behavior where in order to fit in, they kind of unconsciously will mimic the communication behaviors of other people. And some women on the spectrum have even said that having a diagnosis has helped them stay safer because they can realize, you know, sometimes I do this unintentionally and they can monitor a little bit better what kinds of signals the person may be interpreting from them. In a similar way, women on the spectrum who are uh, dating or in a relationship may also say they just fail to recognize the overtures of someone else. So let's say it's not even a dating relationship, but perhaps they meet someone at a convention or 
at a work event and they don't realize that the other person is flirting with them. And it can just turn into a big misunderstanding about where each of them wants the relationship to go. As I said, some of it can be that there hasn't been an episode that felt particularly abusive or traumatic, but in the midst of an evolving social, sexual, romantic relationship, that in the midst of that, it can feel difficult to navigate well. So some women will say things like, I didn't really know I could say no, or I feel like when you're dating, that's supposed to be what you do. And in reality, you know, if they had been prepared with some more communication skills, some knowledge about boundaries, the ability to really reflect what their goals are before this whole part of the relationship evolved, you know, that that may have helped them in this complex social situation. As I said in the beginning, one of the important things about this is that sometimes a practitioner will hear that you have a history of abuse or trauma, and they will automatically assume that all of the characteristics you're demonstrating result from that trauma. And it's really important to find practitioners that know how to distinguish between neurologic presentations, which is what autism spectrum is, it's neurologic connectivity, And then also between mental health issues, which is I've experienced this and this is my reaction to it. I have had trauma and I now have nightmares, that kind of thing. Because you would intervene for neurologic conditions like autism spectrum differently than you would for trauma reactivity. And to diagnose both when they're present is really important. And to make sure that we don't get the two confused is also very important. So getting the correct diagnosis, the appropriate interventions and support for people who are vulnerable or who have had these um, experiences of real relational pain, neglect, abuse, and trauma. Our goal is always for self-knowledge so people understand what's happened to them, what they're feeling and why, how they're wired, what feels restorative to them, and how to get the peace and the centering that they need. Our goal is also to come alongside and support people in our community who have neurodiversity, who have histories of very difficult life experiences, to support parents, to support children, and uh, really work toward the good of all of these people groups as part of our whole community. I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining me.